I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. We're winding down Season 2 with just a few episodes left. We'll be back with Season 3 in January with more episodes to challenge the church to do better, including the voices of artists, survivors, and professionals to help us have these conversations. In the meantime, I'd really love your help with something. I'm placing a link in the show notes with a few questions for you. I'd love to hear what sorts of topics you'd like to hear covered in Season 3, as well as any guests you'd be interested in hearing from. This is a collaborative community, and your input is always welcome. In this forum, I'd also love to hear how the podcast is resonating with you and which episodes you've found the most helpful. Go ahead and check that out in the show notes. The date for our virtual gala is November 6th. This is an opportunity for you to learn more about the nonprofit Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. We can't wait to share the stories of survivors and talk about our hopes and dreams for this organization. Today's guest is Kat Armas, author of Abuelita Faith. I love the Bible. I, I, you know, it's, it's a complicated book because of the way that it's been used and misused, but I'm passionate about sort of reclaiming that. And so I'm passionate about seeing the other side of it. You know, the Bible has been used by the oppressor, but it's also been used as a beacon of hope and light and love and strength by the oppressed. Kat Armas is a second-generation Cuban-American who grew up on the outskirts of Miami's famed Little Havana neighborhood. Her earliest theological formation came from her grandmother, her abuelita. Combining personal storytelling with biblical reflection, Armas shows us how voices on the margins, those often dismissed, isolated, and oppressed because of their gender, socioeconomic status, or lack of education— have more to teach us about following God than we realize. How are you feeling about your book coming out? Good. I'm so excited. I'm ready for it to be out. You know, yeah. you get tired of like talking about it and talking yeah. about it. I was like, please read it. Just like, <laughs> I don't want to talk about Tell me the release date again. August 10th. And I'm pregnant. So like, I still haven't like been out too much, you know, just because I'm just trying to be careful. So it'll be weird and nice. So yeah. Yes. Yes. Let's celebrate with your other baby. Yeah. One of the things that I loved about the book was how many, it may have been all of them. I didn't actually like count were by all of the quotes were either by women, people of color. Were oh, that, yeah. that, was that intentional? Yeah. Yeah. I like, did not. That not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually didn't. I mean, there was, of course I, I used sources from like white dudes and stuff, but like I was very intentional not to quote them. So, and I I quote some like white women and like biblical scholars and stuff, you know, I mean, it's a book about women, so that's fine. But yeah, I was very, I was trying to be very intentional about, so I'm glad you picked up on that. I did. I did. A little thing. Yeah. Yeah. And like the notes, I was like, okay, good. I need, I need to look these people up. Cause I did a Instagram, uh, like a question thing in the stories of like, does anyone have any, like recommendations for like female and people people of color with theologians because I was just like I right I don't have access to right right so, yeah oh uh, it was awesome I've got so many different so yeah awesome I'm so glad about your about your notes yeah so I guess I was really I really resonated with a lot of your story 
because I, I, re- I remember being in seminary and I'm in my like, my, I, t- I turned 30 while I was in seminary. So I wasn't, so it was just like crazy to me how like just, just the world that I grew up in. And I remember thinking like maybe like two semesters in like, oh, we haven't had anything but white male books right past two semesters and then when I would like kind of push back on just ask about it which I don't even know why I noticed it but I did and I wasn't programmed to notice that Um, and when I pushed back on it it was kind of like oh we're like we're open to it but you know we're writing in a specific theological lens and it has to you know you know like this and so if they we just aren't that many that are writing in that and I was like oh okay that makes sense but then of course like later it's like hmm that's Probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then I remember like the first time we got a female, a book written by a female and it was in one of the theology classes. And it was like, I remember reading it and I was like, oh, she sounds exactly like the white men. So this mm. message was like super clear, like, oh yeah, like you're excited, wow. but you yeah. have to like sound right. like this. Right, right. Uh, and that was that was it. Um, and so it kind of sounded like you had a similar experience. I know that you ended up getting your MDiv from Fuller, but that's not where you started. Right, right. Well, I would love to just hear a little bit about the decolonizing yeah. of your faith. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love that you pointed out that, um, yeah, there ha- there's a still a certain tone among you know even women that are in those spaces because you know you have to in order to thrive in those spaces. So. Yeah, it's it's complicated, but I am I am glad that a lot of folks are pushing against that now and we do have more, you know, access and and that's also part of the reason why I wanted my book to be um I I use a lot of Spanish words and I made sure that they didn't italicize them um because I didn't want them to be like different, you know, <laughs> just kind of mixed in there and yeah, and just give a different tone and a different voice into in theological work, you know. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Tell me about your experience of just like coming to that realization in school of, yeah, what you were learning and what you were picking up on and the lens through which you were learning it. Well, let's see. So when I started at my first seminary, um, where kind of this journey began, um, you know, coming from Roman Catholicism and coming from a city where obviously I was the dom- part of the dominant culture. Everyone was Cuban, you know? And so I didn't think too much about, you know, the fact that I was Cuban. Cause it was just something, it's like one of those things like fish don't know they're in water or whatever, you know? Um, and it wasn't until I left and I arrived at this seminary and, um, and yeah, and I, I realized like, wait a minute, you know, my, this isn't the dominant sort of narrative that is, um, being told. And it was when I, you know, when I was, obviously it was a white evangelical space and um, yeah, I mean, the, the upbringing, my upbringing, the religion of my people, of my culture, of my grandmother, she literally wasn't considered saved, you know, like it wasn't even legitimate, you know, um, because she was Roman Catholic and more than that, because she practiced a sort of popular Catholicism. Toward the end of my book, I talk about a woman um, who helped raise me and how she had a very complicated life. She was taken advantage of by the man whose house she cleaned. 
And, you know, she was just a poor brown woman living in little Havana. And her son came out as gay in the 1980s in Miami, you know, in a very machismo culture. So she wasn't really welcome in church. She didn't feel like she belonged or she didn't feel safe there because she was everything that, you know, a a proper, you know, um, Mm -hmm. Christian woman wasn't right. Um, And but she had this beautiful, vibrant faith in her home. And and she had this altar and we would sit in front of the altar and we would pray the rosary. And those were sacred, beautiful moments, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, those were beautiful memories that I had growing up and just, yeah, just beautiful moments that um, shaped me and shaped how I viewed, you know, God and and the divine and how I understood um, faith and spirituality. Right. And so all of a sudden here I am in seminary, which is supposed to be like the place where you're supposed to like learn the most about God. And it's such a, you know, um, an honor to be there. And it was, of course, it's a huge privilege to be there. Um, but it was also, you know, all of those memories, I, I just began to distrust them, you know, distrust. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. wait a minute. That, that wasn't real. What was that? Was that the devil deceiving me? You know? And so it was just so disorienting um, for me. And, and it was also because I, you know, I was, literally one of two Latina women in the entire seminary and, you know, one of five, maybe non-white people. And so it was just very like, you know, again, disorienting. Um, so that's sort of where I began the, the decolonizing journey, um, where I, I started, you know, asking a lot of questions like, wait a minute. So, so what about my upbringing and my culture? Does this mean that, you know, we're, um, you know, my ancestors, even my direct ones, right? Like my grandmother and my great grandmother, does it mean that, that none of these people are, are in quote unquote, or, or that they got it or that they know God at all, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, but then I, I began to really dig into scripture. You know, I love the Bible. I, I, you know, it's, it's a complicated book because of the way that it's been used and misused. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm passionate about sort of reclaiming that. And so I'm passionate about um, seeing the other side of it. You know, the Bible has been used by the oppressor, but it's also been used as a beacon of hope and light and love and mm-hmm. strength by the oppressed. Right. And we sort of get one narrative, but we don't get the other one. You know, people, some people I just want to throw it out or, you know, whatever. Um, so I'm just passionate about reclaiming. So I started digging through scripture and I, I started, you know, reading these stories of these women and I'm thinking, you know, and I'm noticing like, wait a minute, this is a story of my grandmother. This is a story of so many immigrant women um, just trying to survive, you know, mm-hmm. and they're in scripture. And then, and these women are in the genealogy of Jesus. And so that's where I, I, you know, I started kind of connecting these stories to real life stories and the stories in the Bible. And, and I'm realizing this is so far removed from what I'm learning about God in seminary, you know, the heady theological work that is so disconnected, so disembodied, um, so not about survival, you know? Um, so Anyway, yeah, that's sort of how my journey um, of decolonizing began and, and the, the questions that I began asking myself and how, you know, obviously this book sort of came to life. Right. And then your podcast itself, and then you shared a lot of the stories of these women in the books. And I love how you did kind of reclaim and flip it a little bit of just like, instead of like, oh, these are minor characters, so they're not important, but like, oh, how important it is that they were right. even mentioned in right. culture. That, that these stories made it into this right. <laughs> a really, really pivotal piece of information that we're not always made aware of that. Right. Um, and even just like the story, for example, of Rizba, you know, how it's an overlooked story. It's like a couple sentences, you know, in, in second. It's Samuel. weird. People are like, oh, weird story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
but it's like she literally changes the entire course of history of Israel's history because there was a famine and it was her protest that brought rain. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we don't even, you know, we, we think, oh, it's just a whatever story here. It's a cute snip. Well, no, it changed yeah. the course of history, you know? Right. So yeah, yeah. I think um, it's important to sort of reclaim those and tell those and let people know that, hey, it's the women that are doing, you know, some big things in, in the Bible and beyond. Right. And having these like very pivotal moments, right. history changing moments. And I love the idea of reclaiming and just like retelling it in a different way because, um, just the work that I do is with survivors of spiritual abuse and, and that's so much a part of it for me. I, this isn't how everyone goes through the healing process, but for me to like, oh no, this is what this really means. Oh no, this is what right. the curse is. This is how it's been used. And then this is actually how it falls into the story like that flipping is really helpful for me. It's not helpful for everyone. Um, but yeah, yeah no, I like but... that idea of reclaiming because, um, yeah, I just, I, like you, um, I loved the Bible and hate that abuse made it something that was very dangerous right. and I'm sure it can be very dangerous for, um, just because of the colonization, colonization of it. Okay. So since we're talking about spiritual abuse, <laughs> um, you had mentioned a couple of times, about spiritual abuse and named that in your book and different experiences that you had about that and um, specifically uh, mentioned it in the context of just like truth telling telling and when people are silenced would you be willing to share a little bit more about that and flesh that out a little more just based yeah. on experience yeah yeah I kind of mentioned that in the context of Hannah and her story and how she, you know, the, the high priest, right. The person with the most spiritual authority at the time accuses her of being drunk, you know, her husband who has sort of this quote unquote authority over her, um, you know, considering the patriarchal context of which the story is in, um, you know, he, we, the times that her story has been told her husband sort of like this, Oh, but he loves her so much. He loves her more than the other wife. But yet, like the way that if you really look at that through the lens of, you know, whatever, it's like kind of like a weird conversation they have. He doesn't really believe her. He like puts his importance over, you know, her feelings. Like it's just this weird conversation. So I kind of like look at these conversations and I'm like, let's let's look again, you know, because, you know, women in many ways throughout history have just been sort of thrown crumbs of like, yeah, he loves her, you know, and Mm -hmm. or like the Boaz story, like, oh, Boaz is just, you know. Oh, he's the hero of the story. It's like, no, Ruth and Naomi are, but anyway, (laughs) so yeah, I look, (laughs) so yeah, I look at the story of uh, Hannah and I kind of just, you know, with that story, make parallels to my own story and how, you know, people with quote unquote spiritual authority, particularly men. And of course it's not just men, but in my case, it was particularly men considering the context also that I was in, because I was in a a very complementarian or male, you know, dominant setting. Um, And, and yeah, I mean, one of the main things that I I sort of mentioned is how I was labeled suspect, you know, before Mm -hmm. ever even having a conversation, you know, with this pastor. I mean, I, yeah, I had conversations with him, but not like, you know, controversial, uh, yeah, right, right. So yeah, so um, that's something that you know when I when I went through that, it was a very hard time. You know, I had just joined this church, and I was like, I had prior to that been trained, I guess you can say, in sort of like this discipleship model where you kind of just get together with young girls and you, I don't know, just read the Bible or people younger than you, and you 
um, read the Bible and you just talk and do life, whatever. And that was, you know, back then in my evangelical days, of course, but, um, but yeah, so I, I get to this church and it was a brand new church. It was a church plant. Um, and you could tell that they were trying to grow the church and there was, you know, a lot of young people that were trying to like get involved. And so there was a group, I connected with a group of like three or four younger women and, and we really connected and we really, you know, bonded and really vibed at church. And, and I said, Hey, let's just get together and read the Bible, you know, like that would be fun and just get together and have, you know, dinner every week. And, and it was a beautiful time. I mean, there was literally nothing to it other than we would just get together and have dinner and talk, you know, I mean, it was yeah. And this pastor just found out about it, you know, and I say found out because it wasn't a secret. Like I wasn't trying to hide it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he just like, I guess heard about it and he started, and I heard that he heard about it because people started coming up to me and saying, Oh, this pastor is saying this about you and that you were, you're being unsubmissive because you didn't ask him for permission. And it was just really weird. Yeah. Um, but at the time, you know, now I can sort of like, Oh, that was, you know, weird. But at the time it was, you know, horrific for me because I was, you know, this young person in this new church and I was a woman and, and I hadn't really wrestled so much with sexism within the church. I hadn't wrestled with yeah. all of that really. Um, but yeah, but this, you know, this man with so-called spiritual authority, um, cared more about maintaining his, you know, so-called authority or his hierarchy within the church cared more about that than the actual growth of the people in the church. Right. Like it was a threat to him that I was doing the work that he probably should have been doing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a threat to him. And so he, it was easier for him to be bothered by it than to just be like, Oh, that's great. You know, right. um, and whatever you or, or, or villainize you, I guess. He right. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, so I, that was a really hard time for me. And I, you know, as I was writing this book and I was sort of reflecting on different characters of the story and Hannah really stood out to me. Cause I'm like, man, you know, she, it was, you know, a, I guess comforting, you can say to, to wrestle with her story and how she, you know, went through something similar in the sense that someone with spiritual authority, you know, questioned her and um, labeled her suspect um, before ever even giving her a chance to explain herself. And I love that Hannah talks back, you know, she looks at the high priest and she says, no, I'm not drunk, you know, like I'm here. And I just love that. I love her boldness in that. And I just love that she, um, you know, I say that, that she knew her belovedness. She understood her belovedness before God. She knew who she was. She was confident of, no, I'm not drunk. I'm just hurting. And so I'm going to come here to the temple and I'm going to pour myself out before God, because that's what I need right now. So get out of my way, you know? And I just really love that. That was very, and that's not usually how we've seen her story. You know, we sort of, oh, poor Hannah, she can't have kids, (laughs) you know, like, um, but I think her story, there's, there's just so much to her character and who she is. And so, yeah, it was very comforting for me as I was reflecting on that in my own, you know, life. Yeah. Very raw and very grieving and yeah. And that experience that you, and you, yeah, you do mention that experience in the book too, which is just a really intense experience that a lot of people have. And I think to know that there are these characters in the Bible that know what it's like to be dismissed or be misunderstood or be the outcast for nothing, you know, for doing nothing wrong. Literally nothing. Um, yeah. Right. It's like those stories are all over, all over the Bible. Yeah. So, okay. And then you also on the uncertain podcast, I have been interviewing artists just throughout this season. And we are, and one of the reasons why I'm doing that is because just artists tend to get there first. They 
tend to see where we could be 10 years down the road. And so I just like want to invite them into the conversation at the beginning. Um, and so I love that you talked about art and making in the book and how did you, how did you say it? The art of making as a catalyst for healing. And so I really loved that chapter a lot too. So can you talk a little bit about how that art of making played a role in your life? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great question. That was a, a very big thing for me as I was, again, decolonizing and sort of deconstructing all of this and, and trying to um, connect more to an embodied faith that I feel like I was, that I was raised in, you know, I was it, theology for me in my formal spiritual formation, as far as seminary goes, became very heady and very disembodied, as I mentioned. Um, but yeah, as I began to reflect on my childhood and began to f- reflect on my grandmother, I'm like, wait a minute, you know, like so much of how she served or so much of how she gave of herself or so much of how she expressed her love for God and her community was through the work of her hands, was through creating, was through making, whether that was setting the table and making food and, you know, creating recipes that she didn't have a recipe book for, or whether it was, you know, creating um, through literally sewing and, and stitching. And she ended up, you know, starting her own business. And that's how she provided for us, for our family. And it was through just, you know, the women from the community when, and men too would come over and try on clothes all day. And I'd watch them and I'd watch her as she would sew and how she would manipulate the fabric, you know, with her fingers. And it was just so, I have such beautiful memories of that, you know, and how she taught me how to do that. You know, I don't do that now. I wish I still did, but it was such a sweet and precious time that I had with her. And, you know, the more that I would get into, um, again, the Bible, or the more that I would wrestle with um, theology, the more I realized, like, she was theologizing with her hands, you know, she was, oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she was, with her hands. Yeah, right, but yeah, I mean, and it, that's so, I, I found that to be so biblical, you know, I, in the book, I sort of reflect on the story of Jesus, or excuse me, of God in Genesis, when, you know, God creates clothes for Adam and Eve, when they're, you know, when they experience shame, and they realize they're naked, and, and God sits there and dresses them, you know, which is so intimate, and so beautiful, you know, God is a creator in many ways. And, and, you know, and I say that women have, you know, women create, you know, women are creators and healers, and, and they do that with their hands. And so, Yeah. And also in the story of Tabitha, I mean, that was also a big one for me. I love that in her story and and her story appears in Acts and um, she's, she, in her story, you know, she dies and they call on Peter to come and resurrect her. And I thought that that was, it's such an interesting detail, you know, not many people are resurrected in the new Testament besides Jesus. And she's one of them. And I wonder why, you know, as I'm reading this story, I'm like, what is it about her life? that was worthy of resurrection. And, you know, and of course all life is worthy of resurrection. Um, but I, I was just so curious about her, you know, curious about why she was resurrected. And, mm-hmm. and I love that the only detail really, we don't know much about her again, her story short, just like most of the stories of women, you know, they're quick little snippets and her story short, but it's just so jam packed with, you know, imagery. And, and the one thing that we learn about Tabitha is that she sewed and she made clothes for the widows in her community. And she's called a disciple. She's the only woman in the new Testament to specifically be called a disciple. So, yeah, I was thinking about, you know, my grandmother and I'm like, you know, she's Tabitha, (laughs) like she um, sewed and and she created 
uh, garments for people in the community, you know, and it's one of those things that at her deathbed, I just imagine the same thing, all these people coming and bringing, you know, of course, I'm sure a lot of the people she sewed for are no longer here or whatever. But, you know, I envision this like spiritual community of women saying, look, look what she made for us. Yeah. And, and so, you know, to answer your question, art and, and that's all theology, you know, uh, creating and, and, and doing art and however expression, whatever way, that's a way that we tell and the way that we express and the way that we explain um, God and the way that we think about God and the way that we are like God, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I thought that that was a, a beautiful connection when I started, you know, reflecting on my life and, and thinking, man, I learned a lot about the divine just sitting there with my grandmother sewing or watching her. Right. So, uh, oh, so good. So good. <laughs> I don't know if this was a connection you were trying to make, but I was thinking about the stories. You were telling all these stories of these women who basically like lied to get people to do a certain thing. And right. then I can't remember the quote, but it was, it was something about like they deceived in order to tell a truth. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of what art is, especially mm-hmm. if it's something like, like fiction or a film or oh, something. Yeah. It's like, it's, like a, it's not real. Right. Somehow conveys a truth more. Yeah, so. that's so good. I didn't make uh, that connection, but I love it. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I made the connection with your book. It's great. And then you were talking about just like the more embodied um, theology that comes from the art, which then leads into, I didn't, the story like really stood out to me because I just didn't, I didn't know the details of the story, the Janet Jackson story of her, like Justin Timberlake ripping her dress. And I, I had, I knew that that happened because it was like everywhere, like everyone was talking about it, but I didn't know any details. I didn't watch Super Bowl, So I didn't, I didn't know any details of it, but then just the difference in the way first of all, hearing that it was an accident, didn't like, it was painted as if it was like intentional, but it was totally (laughs) an accident. Um, and then the difference in the way that she was treated versus the way that Justin was treated. And I was just like, what? (laughs) I was like, what? Oh my God. I was like, infuriating. Yeah. Furious. Um, but yeah, but then in that chapter, you were just talking about the body and the stories that the bodies tell. Yeah. And I would just love for you to just talk about that for a minute kind of building on that embodied theology thing yeah whatever you want to say (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that was um so I was actually reflecting on that because of course being you know a Latina woman and all of the controversy controversy you know I put that in air quotes around the Shakira and J-Lo um you know Super Bowl thing Mm -hmm. um and that was it's funny. It took me so long to like get over that. Like I kept thinking about like, I'm still not over like just the responses and the opinions of people Mm -hmm. and the things that people were saying, you know, like if the Super Bowl is a time where we're supposed to like, I don't know, like so many things happen in the Super Bowl. Why do you care if women are just like dancing the way that they're, I don't know, (laughs) like there are, you know, anyway, so that was, um, that was a big thing that I wanted to wrestle with. Um, and then of course, you know, I had to make the connection to Janet Jackson because that wasn't the first time that a woman was shamed, a woman of color specifically was shamed on stage for just existing. Right. Um, and again, yeah, it was an accident and Justin Timberlake, his career exploded after that. And hers just completely, it was, you know, a complete wreck, you know, her career ended basically. And so, yeah, so I, I was sort of thinking about that. Um, and just thinking about how the body has been or women's bodies have been, you know, hypersexualized and have been 
Um, yeah, just, I mean, seen as quote unquote stumbling blocks and all of these things. Um, and I, I go back to, cause of course, throughout the book, I, I sort of connect to themes of decolonizing and colonization and all that. And I, I reflect on that, but I go back to, you know, 1492 when Columbus arrived in, in Cuba specifically. Oh, that quote was horrendous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can, you can literally go online and look at his journals and he talks just about, you know, how the women, animals. Yeah. Right. Right. They're, they're shameless, like animals and they go about naked as their mother, their mothers bore them and all these things. And, and, you know, that was the moment that, that a woman's body was sexualized just for existing, you know, because prior to then prior to that time, I mean, yeah, women would go about, I mean, everyone would go, go about naked and it wasn't a thing, you know, a breast wasn't just, you know, wasn't something to make a man stumble. A breast was to feed a child and, you know, to just whatever. So, so yeah, I kind of go back and start reflecting on that and just, and yeah, just the body in general and how our bodies have been hypersexualized, but how throughout history, you know, the body has been used as an expression of spirituality and expression of liberation an expression of freedom. I look at Miriam's story in Exodus and how she led her community in song and dance. You know, that was a a huge part of, you know, when I kind of reflected on her story and man, how beautiful to think that um, as a way to, to, I forgot the word, as a way to celebrate, I guess you could say, um, God saving them from the oppressors. You know, she literally, she had brought timbrels with her. And some Jewish scholars say that this was like a form of wisdom that she knew there was going to be something to celebrate. So she brought an and instrument. Like, like traveling on foot and stuff, right. like of all the things that you can bring. Right. Instruments. Right. Like, it's like, if she, yeah, she was ready. She was ready to dance, you know? And I think that's so profound. Um, and, and yeah, and she just like burst into dance and led the entire community in dance. And this is something we see throughout history. I mean, in, in many indigenous groups and in many, you know, forms of spirituality, this is something that, you know, I didn't grow up Pentecostal, but that's something I so admire from the, from many aspects of the Pentecostal tradition. I mean, dance mm-hmm. is a huge part of worship, right? Um, because it comes, you know, a lot of Pentecostal traditions do stem from different forms of other, you know, religious expressions from other places anyway. So, yeah, so uh, all of these things, you know, I'm I'm reflecting on it and I'm, and and then I am reflecting on my grandmother's life and how dance for her was just such a way that she would engage with her body. And, and when we engage with our bodies, you know, we're doing something spiritual, you know, we're, we're, it's not just, oh yeah, I'm moving my body, but there's, there's more that happens there. Um, it's, it's an internal thing. It's a soul thing. It's a spirit thing. Um, that's why we can watch people dancing on stage. And I mean, whether it's a ballet or whatever, and we can feel moved by it, right? We can yeah. feel moved yeah. by mm-hmm. the movements of our body. So anyway, yeah. So I sort of just tie all of that together. Um, and, and argue that, you know, our bodies are, have, have been, because they are, they are, they can be expressions of liberation and expressions of the divine. Um, that very same thing is used to silence or to, I mean, I, you think about slavery and that's one of the main things. I mean, you're literally beating down the body. You're, you're breaking down the body, um, not allowing it to be free. You're chaining it up, you know, and that, that breaks the spirit, you know, when the body is chained, so is the spirit obviously. So, yeah. So those are some, you know, some of the things that I wrestle with in that chapter um, and just how dance and again, art, you know, it's a form of art 
is a way that we can connect with God in a way that we should, in a way that we do. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it just makes me think of the traditions and the denominations that really shame dancing right. types of dancing. They're not ignorant of that fact. They're right. not ignorant of that spiritualization of it and that connection. They don't want people to right. make that connection. They yeah. don't want that uncontrolled spirituality, basically right. uncontrolled. Yeah. Again, uh, uncontrolled <laughs> in air quotes, spirituality in these certain spaces because they can't Right. It and it's they can monitor yeah. it. Um, and why, why we need the dance. What is something that you really hope people will take away from your book? One thing that you really hope people will take away? Oh, there's so much and in so many different ways. But so one of the central questions that I ask is, you know, what if some of the greatest theologians the world has ever known are those whom the world wouldn't consider theologians at all? Mm-hmm. And um, that's a question that, you know, was haunting me, you know, at before mm-hmm. I started writing this book and, and just the idea that, that they're, you know, we have the most to learn from folks that wouldn't even be considered teachers or wouldn't be considered, you know, and so, yeah, so something that I would love for folks to, to just take from this is, is that is just the, the invitation to see people who would, they wouldn't normally see as theologians, as genuine theologians, right. Um, that we can learn and not that just that we can, but we have the most to learn, um, from children or from the poor or, you know, from, um, people who are just trying to survive, you know, and that's a big theme in my book is just survival. You know, mm-hmm. um, like I mentioned earlier, so many of the women of the, uh, in the Bible are just trying to survive. Like they're not, you know, like, again, going back to the story of Ruth and Naomi, like it's not this sweet romantic thing, which we've normally been taught it is, but it's literally Naomi is like, go seduce this man because you need to get married so that we can live like till, you know, like it's not anything super spiritual, you know, same thing with Tamar, you know, she's like, I need to dress like a prostitute and seduce my, you know, my, my father-in-law because I need to live, (laughs) you know? Um, so yeah. So I think that, um, there are so many, nuggets of wisdom that we can get from folks that are just surviving and not to look at that as, oh, you know, uh, in a, in a patronizing way, Mm -hmm. but to look at that in, in the sort of like, wow, I, you know, I do have so much to learn from you. And so how can we shift, you know, the center, the center of, of gravity? How can we, you know, make the peripheral, the center, how can we just, um, just not uh, patronize folks who are trying to survive, right. but see them as genuine and, sources of theology. Yeah. And find theology just in the places that we wouldn't normally. Yeah. Look. And as you were talking, I was just thinking of the abuse survivors that I work with and just like, I am a survivor of abuse, but that is not the main place that I draw from in, in materials or teaching or anything like, no, I sat with a hundred survivors before I ever said anything about this. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but yeah, just like that wrestling of just like looking for not with necessarily the people who are experts in theology, but looking in those darker places and in places that we're not always, we're not always looking. Right. Right. Um, Is there anything else that you would like to share with folks? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I love chatting with folks who have read the book and, and kind of seeing like what it is that, 
that stands out. And I, you know, love to hear from particularly from you. And just as your perspective as someone who um, learns from speaks to and speaks from the, the perspective of survivors. So yeah, I, I think that this book, you know, I'm hoping that different folks can get different things from it that folks can, whether it's reflect on their ancestors and, and their spiritual grandmothers or, you know, or see things like you were just saying that they're not used to seeing in the Bible. And then, yeah, we can do a lot of reclaiming, you know, um, because I think that we can do a lot of reclaiming with our stories. We can do a lot of reclaiming with the Bible stories and a lot of reclaiming when we're, we're seeing things that we're not, um, that we don't typically see. And so, yeah. Yeah. This is just for me. What version of the Bible have you found most helpful? Uh, The CEB. The CEB. Okay. That's sort of my go-to for sure. Some of my professors at Fuller were part of the translating process. Got it. Yeah, CEB. Common English Bible. There you go. Common English Bible. Okay, great. I am I am looking for new new versions ever since I let, read Beth Allison Barr's book and realized oh, yeah. that the ESV came out of oh yeah reacting to gender inclusive language. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> this is the book that the denomination I was a part of you, oh, yeah. like, like this oh, is yeah. the most reliable Bible. And I'm like, yeah, they're like obsessed with the protest ESV. Bible. Like what? Uh. <laughs> no, that was a, yeah, that was a big moment for me too. When I realized that I was like, oh, I have to like oh. reread the entire Bible again. From oh. a totally different, you know, cause yeah. yeah. Did you, is that what you use? The ES- I used to use the ESV when I was, you know, in like white evangelical culture. And then, yeah. And then I, I moved to the NRSV and then once the CEB, once I learned about that one, that's kind of, I mean, I go back and forth between NRSV and CEB. Um, but yeah. Yeah, the ESV is not good. Yeah, it's rough. It's rough. It's jarring. It's jarring. I gave mine away after I after I read that. I was like, does anyone want this? I like, yeah. come get it. It's yours. But yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful. I'm in, in the market for a new new Bible. Yeah. How can people find you, interact with you? So I'm on Twitter and Instagram, cat underscore Armis, um, and just my website, catarmis.com. Yeah. And I just sort of share my thoughts on there. Also my podcast, the protagonistas. Um, yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. Everyone. I recommend it for everyone. Listen to <laughs> thank <you>. Yes. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, thank you so much. It was so fun. Thank you. Yeah, for, no, thank for, you. Thanks for writing your book and yeah. congratulations. Thank and you so congratulations much. on your baby. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah. And thank you for engaging so well with it. I, I, like I said, I love hearing how folks, how it speaks to folks. So thanks for your great wrestling with it. <laughs> it's good. It's a good, it's a good thought provoker. I love it. So good. Great. Thank you so great. much. You. Have a great rest of your day. You too. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. 
I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time.